Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, director, writer, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is J.C. McKenzie, an actor who's been in absolutely everything. He can currently be seen playing prosecutor Jimmy Neal in The Irishman, which marks his fourth feature with Martin Scorsese after The Aviator, The Departed, and The Wolf of Wall Street. He's turned up in Spike Lee's Clockers and He Got Game, in Aaron Sorkin's Molly's Game, in the upcoming Trial of the Chicago 7, on shows like Hemlock Grove and Vinyl and Madam Secretary, really everything. And he co-stars with Tamara Taylor as married monster hunters in the mildly goofy new Netflix series October Faction, which just dropped on the service last Thursday. J.C. picked 1917, Sam Mendes' World War I drama presented as a single continuous take that follows two young soldiers on a mission through no man's land to save thousands of their British comrades from a German ambush. George McKay and Dean Charles Chapman are the leads, with Colin Firth, Andrew Scott, Mark Strong, Claire Dubuque, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Richard Madden appearing in smaller roles. Showered with awards and nominations this season, it's just received 10 Oscar nods, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography for Roger Deakins, and Best Original Screenplay from Mendes and Christy Wilson Cairns, who's a friend of the show, and how about that? Also, I should caution you that while 1917 moves in a straight line, this conversation does not. But stick with us. We get where we need to be. This is someone else's movie. Just came out. I just saw it two days ago. I thought it was interesting. I think Sam Mendes is a great director. I thought the premise of setting up one camera shot for the seemingly one camera shot, I'm sure it wasn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it seemed to be. I will. I I counted an hour and six minutes into it before the first blackout. I became more obsessed with his camera technique than being immersed into the story of the horror of World War One through the eyes of this young man, who I thought George McKay was very, very good. I thought that he oversupplemented his piece with. Uh, uh, not an overwrought score, but maybe a score that could have been a little more nuanced. And Roger Deakins, a great cinematographer, I thought he was, he was, I mean, what could they do? They're, they're on one angle for the entire time, and how do you sort of get everything? I think you did get a lot through his face, George McKay's face, which was extraordinary. Yeah, I, but, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. It's weird, but it's exactly what you said. I started thinking more about the technical challenge than I did the actual narrative, which I'm not sure was the intention. But long takes in film, I think it's almost impossible to tell a story in a single take or to the appearance of a single take without robbing some of the momentum. Just because cutting is... Editing is, is, is interruption. It's, it's action. Even if it's just changing the focus in a given moment, you're goosing the audience every time we sure. have to recalibrate tell that to, to Tony Scott yeah well geez I was in a I was having lunch with my family a couple of weeks ago uh, and taking the Pelham 123 was on a television set out of, over the bar in the distance uh-huh. and I just kept counting quietly uh, it's like two three uh, four uh, five uh, six seven yeah uh, I did the same thing with the Born Identity mm. I'm like two seconds that's it oh two the other seconds. ones the, the Greengrass films right yeah, yeah, yeah. it's crazy and, and Greengrass to me is the great, one of the greatest living directors Particularly for actors, because he lets them roam free. I'm really into improvisation. He, I've had a couple of buddies work in his films, and he's always into that. But I could not believe the edit cuts. One, two, one, one. Yeah. One, two, one, two. I mean, really? With Supremacy specifically, it felt like he was trying to disorient us to the point of like incomprehensibility. And I don't 
know that that tactic works as well as he thinks it does. Yeah. Um, he just, I don't know. It's it's visceral and right. in the acting in the action sequences, and then when you actually watch people think, it's just like cut cut cut. You can't get you can't see somebody's eyes. Yeah, I mean, and this was too much maybe of the eyes. I don't know. Too much of the cows. Too much of uh, <laughs> the animals in the farm. The fires. The plane. I mean, it was striking, striking images. You know, a plane coming down into that barn and engulfing them in flame, engulfing the German soldier in flames, and you know it was surprising. You know, he goes away to deal uh, to, to for help. Comes back. He's he's being his buddy is being stabbed. He's dead within the next few minutes. I mean, it was shocking in that sense. He clear. I've never heard an individual speak more eloquently about directing and his aesthetic and. You know how he, what's important to him in terms of filmmaking. I auditioned for him for a play in oh. New York one time, and normally they don't give a shit, you know. But he said to me, he pointed out what he thought was positive with me, which I thought was cool. They don't, they never do that. Mm. Here's what you have: you have a nice stillness and a quality on stage that. I sound like I'm bragging. No, I don't. No, no, no. I don't mean to be. I'm not like that. But it's okay. I'm just telling you the, the way he works yeah. with actors. He's clearly very good with actors. But uh, I don't know that film. To me, I, I just wasn't. I just wasn't emotionally moved by the film. Yeah, because I think... because of it because of his technique of the the one continuous shot throughout. I think it deadens you a little bit as as a viewer. Um, we we screened it at uh, Secret Movie Club at the at the Lightbox in December. That was our that was our big surprise for the for the audience. And Pierce Handling and I did a, a Q and A afterwards. And what was really fascinating to me was hearing the audience who really liked it also sort of come to grips with the fact that it wasn't the movie they wanted it to be. What did they it, want it to be? I think they wanted something with a much more dynamic victory at the end just the mm -hmm. idea that we're left in silence didn't but it is an inherent victory i mean it's a race and he wins the race yeah. i mean it's almost heroic it's just everything but the swelling music happens toward the end you know mm. but then you have the swelling music right like it, <laughs> and it kind of mutes that i think uh -huh. the the fact that you have this huge crescendo and this big you know the the, the shot that's circulating on every social media uh, platform right now which is him running they, yeah how they shot it versus what was actually the result with these, How did they shoot it? Uh, it's it is one continuous take of him running up and over the trenches, right? And him and, bashing into other actors yeah. and getting up, and it's all very expertly choreographed. And there are oh, people who are they're, they're, the actors are real. They didn't use CG like busts for him to bounce sure. off of them yeah, and turn yeah. into soldiers. But they and there are flash pots basically where the explosion craters are. The huh. craters are they're already there because he's running past the the thing that's going to puff up. And it's a big black rectangle with the pyro stuff inside of it. And it's it's fascinating to see that. But it's also... I mean, it sort of takes... Obviously, you're not watching this happen. It's not real. We're watching a digital and, and celluloid simulacrum of, 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 of the actual war. But it surprisingly... Like, it just made me think of it as choreography rather than performance. That's and a great point. I wonder if that's, that's part what of I it. got too. It's like a dance piece almost, you mm -hmm. know. I really wasn't emotionally involved in his journey. I know it's horrible to say. Yeah. I mean, also what's interesting is that there's very little in terms of documentation about the First World War. So I loved it for that. I wanted to know what it was like to be in the trenches, experience. You know, I did get the muck and the wet, and you know the. 
and the rats and all of that. My grandfather was in World War One and went to uh, sleep in a trench with a gas mask and woke up with his best buddy uh, uh, and he couldn't get out from under him. He had experienced rigor mortis. He was dead oh, yeah. because he hadn't worn a gas mask. I just, you know, there's, very, you know, it's, there's a lot of documentation about World War II, obviously, and Vietnam and the Korean War, but not, not a lot about World War I. So for that, I found it interesting. But um, anyway, it's on everybody's 10 best lists, and it'll probably win, won the Golden Globe for for best drama, but it doesn't say much. And screenplay? Yeah. Um, and uh, screenplay? Uh, oh, no, it didn't. Sorry, it's nominated now for original screenplay. Yeah. Uh, but Christy Wilson-Cairns, who, uh, who did the podcast when the film came through town... Uh, she picked Shallow Grave, and anybody listening should go listen to that because it's really great. We had like 27 minutes and we filled it, uh, talked very quickly, and it was good. But she was saying that a lot of the individual incidents were drawn from stories that Mendes' grandfather had told him. Yes, of course. The, that's the, the, the piece dedication at the end. end yeah, yeah, dedication at the end. Uh, but then they found echoes of the stories in other pieces here and there. There's a lot of... Um, uh, there's an archival history, I guess it's in the Imperial War Museum, but there are individual stories. And um, the BBC actually uh, released a lot of their archive of audio interviews to Peter Jackson for his doc. I know, which was an amazing doc. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Yes. And I, I gather they, yeah, they get a lot of, lot, lot of their information through that, mm -hmm. or Mendes did, so. Yeah, and apparently the, um, the most horrific image is, is related, is, is, is from someone's story, which is putting your hand into someone and just having it go right through which is so early in the film too i think that's there are a couple of things that he does structurally uh visually and in terms of the script that that really sell the rest of the film for me likewise one of them is, one of them is that is introduced you to the horror right away mm -hmm. uh and you know he's cut his hand oh that's gonna be bad and then just to stuff it into someone's corpse which is even worse it just makes you wonder if anybody got out of this thing with all of their arms and legs just a little bit of, of you know body horror and the other thing is the way that the first camouflaged cut or the join in the trenches when he's walking down and in, even before he sees the general, mm -hmm. is really, really obvious. There's a soldier's back who just kind of, someone gets in front of the camera and stands there for maybe a third of a second, just long that, enough for us to enough. know that that's yeah. where they're sw swapping out. That hides all the other, the, your brain starts looking for that rather than the more yeah. invisible digital Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you think about uh, all the... Um the so-called star uh, actors playing character parts in, in uh, you know... It's a, I mean, it's a gimmick, right? It, it jazzes it up a way. It's a way to sell people. But I thought the actors did fairly good jobs of it. Mark Strong, particularly. Oh, uh, he's fantastic. He shows up in the middle, is the one person who seems genuinely compassionate and interested. Yeah. And then he takes his time at that last line to say, you know, whatever he says, which just sells it. Mm -hmm. uh, I agree. And that's hard stuff to do, you know. I was uh, just in a um, an Aaron Sorkin film where Aaron Sorkin was panning around to these great character actors who all have three, four lines, and then they come to me, and it's just like I was so panicked performing in front of these great character actors, I blanked, which is horrific because <laughs> yeah. everyone has got their shit down. Mark Rylance, Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redman, Mark Strong, and then J.C. McKenzie, and I, I was... <laughs> Horrified to the point where I had to write the lines down on my hand oh, and, wow. and do one of these as the camera's coming around just so I could remember. It was just awful. It's just like, now that's odd. That's odd. Normally I don't have difficulty, but 
But in a setting like this around a courtroom, mm-hmm. you know. Does it, could it work? But I thought Does about, it... I, I only bring that up because I thought about these actors coming in for their very small bits, having having had a continuous shot. Of course, that wasn't the case. I found out later on. But talk about pressure. Yeah. I mean, you got one actor screwing up two lines. and you Okay, let's go back to the beginning. You know, and the lead actor got, come on, get your shit together. I did notice that almost all of them are in confined spaces where it would be possible to start the take on the way in or out. I think oh, that's Strong is outside a lot and uh, Andrew Scott is outside. Yeah. But Firth and Cumberbatch are both isolated. Yeah. I thought Firth is great, too. Yeah. Anything he does is great. I had the feeling watching it that you could actually watch other movies about those characters. Like, it feels like we're intruding on their movie uh, yeah. in a weird yeah. way, just Absolutely. because of the way the camera runs up to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's always some business happening. There's something yeah. going on. Maybe that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Andrew, Andrew, what's his name from Fleabag, too? Scott. Yeah. Andrew Scott. Just a fascinating performer. Yeah. He's great because he does not... Whatever the role is, he refuses to give you what the role demands, which I find fascinating. He makes it work for him. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, uh, you that, know, Moriarty and Sherlock just got bigger and bigger and bigger because they kept bringing him back, and I think he was just trying to find the ceiling there. But what he does here is just, like he's not—he's not clipped. He's not—he's not the upper-class British you know, lieutenant we're told to expect in these movies. Mm. I mean, none of them is except maybe for Firth. Yeah, and. He's just like, get out of the way, get moving, keep going. Well, he he's... seems also slightly unbalanced, mm. you know. I wonder like if that's he's just... just off. I mean, that last clip of him just laughing and shaking his head, it's such an odd mm. actor move. That's what and I'm you... saying. That's his energy. Yeah, that's his energy. It's so good in Fleabag. Best, the best performance I've seen all year. Oh, wow, really? Oh, my God, that love story. I've never seen a better love story. Yeah. A genuine connection between two actors who have chemistry. How difficult is that? It's almost impossible. Yeah. Well, but that's her friend. She chose him. They've known one another for, for many, many years. So, Yeah. I've heard nothing but positive things about him. For, like, ever I've, since he I've first heard him interviewed right? now several times. He's just a mensch. Yeah. And he's, he's got kind. That. He's smart. He knows what he's talking about. He's and empathetic. He does stage. And he's got that. Well, I think that's why, right? He's got that listening quality. He can actually be present. That's. I think that's why Fleabag works so well. He really is listening to her. He's not just faking it and waiting for his line. No, and that's the key. I mean, I, I find 75 percent of these performances, no one's listening to one another. I mean, it's what you learn in acting school, but nobody does. Yeah. Is it because the camera's not on him? Is it one of those oh. tenses? They're you know, like they're waiting for to be <laughs> sharper and closer. I, I don't know. I mean, I. I tell young actors all the time, just listen, it's half the battle. That's half your work right there. It's just your response to what they're doing. It's like, that's why Sandy Meisner was so good. Mm. You know, it's like looking at, seeing, seeing, and it's all, it's all subtext. Yeah. It's not in the lines. It's like, what's going on? Is this person like me that was passive-aggressive? I didn't like that? Fuck you. I'm yeah. going to go after you. So it's interesting. Yeah, he does that well. And I think maybe, too, it's also important to have actors who are that receptive in this film because we're watching so many of them from over somebody else's shoulder I mean McKay I'm not <clears throat> sure I like George McKay I've seen him Why? in a bunch of films and he always too much has, of a cipher he always has the same expression so maybe he just kind of looks seems like a big dumb young guy well, or what just like he's about to cry he's he's sort of unsteady in a way that I find <laughs> well that's not so bad well no but it's if it's the same if it's thing one note over and over and over again it's, I haven't seen him in anything uh, else like what Captain Fantastic he was Viggo Mortensen's oldest what's Captain Fantastic uh, it's it's an interesting 
kind of misfire. It's it's a drama about Viggo Mortensen as a sort of um, checked out father who lives in a bus in the woods with a, with a oh, bunch I of saw his that. kids. Yeah, I he, saw that. He was nominated for Academy Award, yeah, wasn't and he? McKay was the oldest kid. He was? Yeah. That's where I've seen him. Probably. But much younger. Yeah, three years ago, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how old a kid is he? I think he's in his early 20s. He was just in something else, too. I know. Wasn't he in just uh, this week? the war film two years ago with... Uh, um, oh, Journey's End? No. One? No. Uh, Colin Firth was in it, too. Uh, what was it? Who's, who directed it? The great, great, great British director. This is why we have the internet. I'm going to look it right up because otherwise we'll be talking in circles. This has happened before. Don't feel bad. Okay. Um, it was like it was like la- I think it was last year or two oh, years ago. War film, brilliantly uh, photographed. Kev- Nolan was it a Nolan directed uh, film? Dunkirk. He's Dunkirk. not in that. I He's not. Think. No. I'm almost oh, positive. Okay. Uh, Thought I saw him in that. He was in. Oh, Pride. Uh, Right. A few years ago, about a, uh, a Pride March in the um, in the UK. Oh, it was um, the other film he was in this year was the True History of the Kelly Gang, which played at TIFF. Never saw it. No, me neither. I missed it. Um, but he played Ned Kelly, surrounded mm-hmm. by Essie Davis and Nicholas Holt, Thomas and Mackenzie. I'm just reading from the IMDb at this point. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was Justin Kurzel's new film. He's the guy who did Macbeth and Assassin's Creed. And oh, Where Hands Touch, which. I did not care for. Um, Never saw it's, it. It's uh, Ama Asante's film about um, a mixed-race German girl in World War II who falls for uh, a, the son of a Nazi officer who is himself a Nazi, and he played that. And again, the sort of uncertain, gormless thing he does with his face really worked against that character who you need to read. You need to know where he's coming from. And he just looked confused all the time. <laughs> and maybe that's what people want. I mean, I don't, I don't uh-huh. mean to completely shit on George McKay. I think he's actually pretty good when he's used properly, but uh, I do find that lack of That's interesting. Range. It didn't bother me that much. And he's good in this, because as you say, to play a cipher, to play someone we don't know, yeah. he's well cast. Yeah. Yeah. And who's the other kid? Never mm. never never seen him. No, he was um he was a new one to me as well, I think. Uh, I'm just looking up the name on the Dean Charles Chapman. Huh. Who I don't know that I've seen in anything before. Um mm. and kind of you know, there's that thing where if you're watching uh, a, a two-hander with someone you know and someone you don't know, that the person you don't know isn't going to be around for that long. Yeah, but they're I gonna, was, they're going to be killed shortly. I was sort of hoping that, yeah, Blake, Lance Corporal Blake, would make it through if one of them had to die, because then the one who hasn't seen action and the one who is underprepared would be more interesting to watch for me. Sure, it's more compelling. But that's just me being... Oh, uh, he apparently was not an unknown. He was just in the later seasons of Game of Thrones, which I didn't watch. I never watched an episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah. I watched the first season. How was it? Eh, pretty rapey. Rapey? Very misogynistic. That Is just, it? Yeah, that just got worse and worse. Wow. They built on the thing from The Sopranos, the what they called sex position, which is that if you're going to have long chunks of exposition, you have nude women around to distract the viewers. <laughs> which Is that it? Yeah, that's a thing. And I don't... I don't care for it. I, I it. watched one episode of The Sopranos. It was it was in a pool hall, and, and that's right. There was a bunch of naked women. There. A lot of bang, right? The strip club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every pretty much every episode. And that wow. was just part of the manifest of that show. Yeah. What's your show? What do you like? Um, right now, The Good Place. Actually. The Good Place. The Good Place. The yeah. Sitcom. The Sitcom. Have you Why? seen it? No, I don't. I don't watch sitcoms. Okay. If I 
could describe it. I do not it. want to watch. Is it a yeah. single camera sitcom? Uh, it is. It's oh. a single cam. It's from Mike Schur, who made Parks and Recreation and The Office. And, right. uh Great, great uh, shows. Yeah. And, and this is his film. This is his film. This is his... Um, this is his opera. It's about, it's about what we owe to each other. It's a philosophy text in sitcom form. The concept is that four people. The have, thing with Ted Danson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Four people die. Uh, right. We don't see that. We open with the afterlife, um, and we follow it through the eyes of Kristen Bell's character, who is self-described an Arizona trash bag, who has been mistakenly admitted to the good place because she shares the same name as a truly good person. So she's told right away that... But she's a bad person. She's just a jerk. She's a selfish, self-absorbed person. Um, and she has to figure out how to stay, how to justify her presence. Uh-huh. Uh, and one of the other people there with her is a Nigerian philosophy professor who has been assigned to her. Basically, there's the, princ- the premises that they're soulmates. And he's a philosophy and ethics professor. The so young she, kid? Uh, yeah, he's in his 30s. 30s? Yeah, yeah I Jackson saw him Harper. on stage in New York. He's yes. a great actor. Yeah, the Zoe Kazan's play. Yeah. Yeah. You see that? I did not. I oh, it's here. so brilliant. I really wanted Zoe to. Zoe Kazan? Yeah. She's Genius. amazing. She's my favorite actress. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, I think she's amazing and so undervalued. She's incredible. I um, I keep trying to get her on this. She's agreed, but we just never had the schedule. Really? Right? Yeah. I'll get her. There's a, there's a bunch of really great stuff and out there. And what, what film do you like? What film do you like this season? You can say whatever you want. I know um, I'm in one, but it does. You don't have to like it. Parasite and Knives Out are the ones I'm right. recommending to people. I haven't right seen now. Knives Out. I've seen Parasite. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, Knives Out's a lot of fun. Is it? Yeah, it's yeah. the, it's the same thing Ryan Johnson did with Brick and with Looper and with The Brothers Bloom and even with The Last Jedi. He just takes a, an existing genre that we think we understand. Turns it, turns it on its head. Well, yeah, and also celebrates why we love it. Mm-hmm. Which is the best? Like Knives Out is really just an Agatha Christie whodunit, True. with a sense of perspective. Yeah, and kind of the the how can I explain it? The colonialism of Christie becomes the Make America Great Again movement in this, and he's managed to keep all of those things and and also quietly just point out why they should never have been acceptable quirks in the first place in her work in his work. Um, Branna sort of does the same thing with Murder on the Orient Express, but oh, I heard that was not good. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it is. It's, who done it? It is, and it's it's very much in love with the David Lean mode of filmmaking of the old school big roadshow. You know, look at yeah. this. We're shooting in camera sixty five on sound stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's got a well, I mean, it's Branna, so it has a love for acting, just a larger sure. than life performance. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Hodgman did that one for this podcast. We're going to get back to this eventually, the, the purpose. But yeah, it, there's. I think we're in a place now where entertainment in general is becoming self-aware in a way that I really respond to. Um, the ones that do it from a place of love rather than a place of irony. You know, this is what I love so much about Agatha Christie. Let me show you how much fun I can have making these actors bounce off of each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That works for Brenna and for Johnson. Sure. Well, it's very theatrical. Mm. Brana is a theater, theater, a theater rat. Yeah, yeah. And I think Johnson, I mean, he, it isn't stagey in the same way that that the Brana film is, with sort of there's, there's this slightly operatic pitch, but he does love just watching actors, be silly. Um, Daniel Craig just does this magnificent Cajun accent. Uh, oh, he does playing Benoit Blanc. Huh? Which is the, their version of Poirot and their version of um, every sleuth ever. Right. But he is 
Craig is so is having so much fun with the accent that I'm almost positive he's putting it on as the character. The character is faking it too. Yeah, yeah. And it never cracks, and you just keep waiting for it. And <laughs> that becomes part of the play. That's funny. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, just those little moments of actors distinguishing themselves again, like um, like what Strong does. Even Cumberbatch, who has been in, in, in 1917, who's introduced as someone we shouldn't trust, simply taking that pause <laughs> becomes weighted and and nervy. It's kind of great. Yeah, whether he's going to go for it or not. Yeah, yeah. simply do the right thing or yeah. not. Yeah. And we've watched enough senseless carnage at that point that it's entirely possible there will just be more of right, it. Right, right. And I have to admit, Mendes being Mendes, I thought he was going to go for the downbeat ending. I thought that would make you know more of a statement. Right. Because the war will go on for another year, sure. obviously. We yeah. know that. Or a year and a half. Yeah. I was trying to figure out if this is actually all a setup for the, the classic, you know... Uh, downbeat ending where yeah. everybody dies because that's that's the way it happened, man. Except right. that it's also Sam Mendes wanting to please the crowd, so we have to have a victory. Did you like uh, um, his first film that won the Academy Award? Uh, American Beauty. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's kind of colored now in the in the uh, in the rearview mirror. Well, no, the, everything that has happened, including Alan Ball, just turning out to only have one note to play about. The, the the misery the miserable lives of of uh, the upper middle class you know, I went right into um, six feet under and everything else you, it feels now very much like a manufactured independent film that was produced by a studio there's a gloss to it that I don't think has dated terribly well oh. but at the time yeah I liked it a lot yeah. I thought it um, I don't I don't know that it was saying anything but it was really entertaining yeah and I've never never seen a bag be more compelling in my life. It works, right? Like, it sells you on it. I Every time I see a bag uh, floating in the air, I think of that film. Yeah. Just magically taking on a life of its own. Yeah. I think it's going to be a little while before I can watch it without the Kevin Spacey factor. I mean, that's that's retroactively colored yeah. a lot of stuff. What the hell is that man doing? Yeah. It's just... Those monologues at Christmas Eve are oh, just... They gotta go. Man. Yeah, I have not seen those. I know, oh, I know about them. so but. creepy and weird. I did an episode of uh, House of Cards. It was odd. Yeah. Yeah. Was it with him or before? Yeah, with before him. Before or after? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I I interviewed him in 94, I guess it was, before The Usual Suspects. He'd made a movie called Swimming with Sharks. Sure, maybe it was of course. 90, it's a great movie. Yeah, maybe yeah. it was 93. And he wa- he charmed me. I mean, he's that was very what he smart. does, right? Like, he works people. Yeah, he does. Out. Yeah, he's an entertainer. Hmm. Yeah, complete with uh, uh, accents and uh, impressions, and uh, that's yeah, that's yeah. He's he's a, he's an interesting guy. I won't say too much about him. Yeah, I don't. I think he's a clever, very, very, very good actor, who's deeply troubled now. And God knows, I think he might be accepted back into the theater world before television so? film. Yeah, I think they're more forgiving, if you will, and they want box office. Mm. It's, I a dra- it's a draw. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's true. Bill Cosby was touring before he got. Yeah, he was put away. pilloried, though. I mean, yeah, people but he was screaming still, at him. Yeah, he was still drawing crowds, right? That's, Went to Bill Cosby concert, you know, er, in my early twenties at the National Arts Center in Ottawa. Oh yeah, and I was laughing so hard I had to leave my seat and go into the lobby and put my hands on my knees and I looked up and there were hundreds of other men in the exact same position because he was so. Funny. Yeah. It's just, it's gutting, isn't it? When someone whose work you enjoy suddenly becomes 
a pariah. Well, tainted. Yeah, the work becomes tainted by that, and the person is. Boy, does it ever! I mean, you'll never look at Bill Cosby again. No, but yeah, I mean, Kevin Spacey retroactively kind of wrecks for now American Beauty. I just have no interest in watching it again. <laughs> I'll push myself to watch Baby Driver again because I love Edgar Wright, but uh-huh. and he's not the lead. That's probably no. part of it. But um, I think it's—is it Scott Ackerman? I hope it was Scott Ackerman because I'm associating it with him. And the idea is that you are allowed to like the stuff you liked before you knew. Sure, of and course. And then after that... Look at Woody Allen. Yeah, if you're defending it... Well, Woody Allen's even worse because if you look back, all of that stuff is in his movies. It is. But it was acceptable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So we as a society are as to blame, uh, you know, uh, not more than Woody Allen, for God's sake. Yeah. I kind of wonder how to handle a lot of it because... There are things about Annie Hall in Manhattan that I... And, and even Husbands of Manhattan, Wives, particularly. Well, Manhattan... He's dating a 17-year-old. Yeah. You, and you know. can't get away from it. It's the one time in all of his movies that a character dates someone that much younger and that they're called out on it. It's still forgiven within the film. Yeah. But it's the only time he confronts it as a, as a filmmaker. Right. And I've always kind of wondered about that. Did it... Is that what makes it okay? Because he calls it out that he allows himself to so continue are you doing it. Tainted uh, watching Annie Hall now that you know what he's what what he is or what he's uh, you know the allegations against him. I think it's a harder job to watch it. I I haven't watched it since, but Annie I, Hall. Yeah, I'd like really? to. Well, he's still there. Like, he's still there doing what though? It's the idea that you know what it is. It's like looking. This is a terrible analogy. But it's like looking at newsreel footage of someone who hasn't killed anyone yet, but who did. Because, again, I'm not accusing him of murder. No. Um, and what, what are you accusing him of? The creepiness of it. Of what? Just marrying fact- his stepdaughter? Well, that's creepy, too. But- because that, that factually is the only thing that went on. I mean, you know, of course, he did make movies about a lecherous older man going after younger women and, you know... A lot of those movies. <laughs> but, that's, but that's what I mean. It's the... Whether or not the the Dylan Fair accusations are true, and I I don't know either. I think that... I think that she believes it. I definitely I think she believes it. But I also... As, as does her brother. Yeah, but I don't know... This came up when, when Jeremy Lalonde did the Annie Hall episode. I don't want to defend Alan, not because it might be true... But I don't want to defend him because the response to it, everything else he's done, the way he's doubled down on making shitty movies these last 15 years that still make the same core argument of if an artist wants to do something, an artist should be allowed to do it. That makes me wonder. And also... Is he so obtuse that he couldn't he couldn't have done uh, what, the, what they're... Uh... No, it just alleging. it makes me wonder if it is possible well, because yeah. he can just his films are all about the justification of bad behavior and it's just yeah. like how high does it escalate? But that that's inherently human and what's what makes drama drama is that, that it's compelling and it's conflictual and it's you know it's adversarial and sure what what do you, it's it's not supposed to be roses and you know balloons. Oh yeah, but my I guess my larger problem with him creatively all of the personal stuff aside, as much as you can separate the art from the artist, is that he makes the same movie over and over again, and it's become I less and less that. interesting. I and agree if, with that. If yeah. his insistence on justifying himself is stemming from that, yeah, just creative emptiness. I mean, he is in his 80s. Yeah, but... And which isn't to say, you know, there are but, great 80-year-olds making great films. Yeah, Martin Scorsese, 78. He's 78, He is yeah. still... He is arguably making the same kind of movie. He is. But he's doing it 
with way Although more... this was different. Yeah. I think this and Silence, like The Irishman and Silence are the sort of two great pieces. Like his... Everything he does is... Uh, well, not everything he does, but he's made a dozen masterpieces. Masterworks, whatever you want to call it. But I think Silence and The Irishman are in real communication with what each other. What are the masterworks? Raging Bull, Goodfellas? Raging Bull, Goodfellas, Taxi Driver... Uh, I would fight pretty hard for Kunden. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. I loved it. I, really? I saw that at the Uptown One way back when. Uh-huh. Just It was a screen fairly late. I remember that. It was like a 10 a.m. December screening, and I was sort of braced to not like it because it sounded like a, yeah. a leap for him, and yeah, I just yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, talking about a man. And Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which no one ever talks oh, about. it's a great it's film. It's just a lovely little it's movie. It's a great film. Yeah. 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 Sorry, you were about to say something. No, I wasn't. I have no thoughts. <laughs> Who do you like as a young director? Uh, the Safdie Brothers right now. Great. Didn't Uncut see it. Gems. Uncut Gems. Good Time. Have you seen Good Time? No. They're kind of the same movie, and in a weird way that it, it's echoing the Woody Allen and, and the Scorsese thing. They really, they do one thing, but they do it exquisitely well, which is to manufacture anxiety. Wow. Um, you will watch Uncut Gems wondering if you're having a stroke. Really? <laughs> just you just your Is whole that, you're body, tightening up yeah your whole body contorts huh? wow. um it'll be on netflix by the time this comes out so anybody listening who hasn't seen it should definitely see it great um no, and I good time wait. is good time is probably uh it's like the embryonic execution of it it's the same kind of thing it takes place over less time uh it's like a one night story mm-hmm. and it has more going on i think overtly in its privilege in, in commentary on class and privilege because the point of Robert Pattinson's character is that everyone else he affects is a lesser than to him uh, he ruins about half a dozen lives in the course of trying to do the right thing which is not the right thing it's what he wants to do and Uncut Gems has sort of the same thing going on but without that extra layer of what's it called? Uh, good Time Good Time two words <clears throat> it was on it was on uh, Netflix. I'm not sure if it still is. Oh, huh, okay. But Check yeah, it out. the Safties. I mean, Edgar Wright still pretty young. He's only been working for 15 years. Yeah, yeah. Probably. I mean, he's the guy who makes movies that I feel were made for me personally. They just, they make me so happy. Um, what about Canadian directors? There's a bunch. I'm getting to the point now where um, we're just being flooded with like it, it's finally happening now the the movement from telefilm two three years ago to get the micro budget films out we're starting to see them and so people like Kazak Rydwanski and Calvin and Yona the uh, Calvin Thomas and Yona Lewis who made White Lie and um, Kaz's new film is called Anne at 13,000 these are people I've, I've known casually for you know five or six years at least coming out with movies that are fulfilling their potential. Uh, Molly McGlynn, who made Mary Goes Round a couple of years ago, um, this great little movie set in Niagara Falls with Aya Cash as a, as a, a woman who goes home because her, her father is dying and she has to... Uh, no, it wasn't. She goes home because her father is dying and she meets the half-sister she never really liked. She knew but didn't really like, and it's all about kind of breaking cycles and reconciling. It's a great performance and also a really good movie around it. Oh, God damn it. Nicole, uh, director of Black Conflux. It's about a it's about two people on a collision course, a guy in his late 20s who is harboring awful misogynistic thoughts and a, a young girl, like a teenager who's 16, 17, who's just starting to figure out what puberty and adolescence have led her to and who she is. And it's set in 1987 in Newfoundland, and it's 
Fascinating. Yeah, it's really strong. Wow. Also has an amazing single take. Really? Uh, not the whole film, but yeah. there's a take in the midsection, which is one of those great fluid ones that you don't really realize is a wonder. Oh. Uh, follow someone... So it doesn't take you out of it. No, no, it's really effective. Huh? Follow someone into, um, into a bar where Gowan's strange animal is playing. Sorry. What's the purpose of the shot? It's, uh, it sets up a fight. Uh. Um, but it follows someone into this bar. It's a criminal mind, I think, which, which is a commentary on the character as much as it is on the, the, the moment in time. Dance floor's crowded. There's all this stuff going on. And then you gradually realize we're still with him. It's the Copacabana shot in Goodfellas in, through, and out. But it, it works beautifully. Wow. And it just... And then it stops, and you go back to the movie, and you're sort of left with the energy of that. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And that's... I mean, to get back to, one, to, to 1917, I think that's the one thing that Mendes doesn't account for. If you're going constantly, the tension... Like, the, the tension has to come from things in the shot. It was just right? too self-conscious. It just... I was too aware of what was going on, mm-hmm. as opposed to being engulfed in the story. Losing myself in the story, it didn't happen. Yeah. I don't know. And it's the same... Uh, have you seen... Did you see Spectre? The, no. the The Bond film he made, the second no. one? It opens with a single take that goes on for, I want to say, seven minutes. Yeah, but you got plane crashes and people, you know, doing well, flips. and It ends know. with a building collapsing underneath him and we go down with the camera. And that was when I started thinking, okay, first of all, this is the beginning of the movie, so none of this can matter. This is the pre-credit sequence. Sure. That's your so standard. It's like a typical Bond the sequence. The Bond rule, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, all I was thinking about is, oh, is someone standing on a platform? Is there, you know, <laughs> take me away. Take yeah. me into the moment. Yeah. The the ending of, speaking of Brenna, the last, the credits uh, out in uh, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, if you remember that, that's like 25 years yeah, ago as well. Yeah, a long time ago. It ends with the camera running through the celebratory dance at the end of the movie. Everybody just starts dancing together because the movie is over and this is a celebration of uh, Beatrice and Benedict finally getting together and, and there's this and the, the marriage of uh, Hero has just gotten married. I can't remember to whom, but everybody's happy and it's it's splendid and lovely. And they run through these people and then suddenly, somehow, without even noticing it, you're above them and going up and obviously the Steadicam operator is standing on a crane. And it takes... I'm 30 seconds to register that you're too high, that the shot is still continuing, that how did this happen? I went back and watched it again, like, theatrically, sat through the whole movie just to watch that shot to make sure I hadn't hallucinated it. And it's exhilarating. I mean, that's the use of a single take to give you something. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. And with 1917 and with Spectre, it's it's show-off-y in a way that I don't know it's supposed to be, right? Mm. Like, did you see uh, Atonement? Joe Wright's film, which has that single take of Dunkirk. Yeah. So, I just had that feeling that um, that Mendes had gone to see Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, <laughs> and then thought, "Wait a minute, didn't I somebody can, do this in a single I can take?" Do that, and then it just—I can do that throughout. The pieces came together. For two hours. Yeah, and I don't want to suggest that he's doing it for personal glory because I don't think that's true. I just—I think he thought he had a way into the story that hadn't been so tried. So, how did they do that? How single did, take? Yeah. A it's lot. not a single take. Yeah, a lot of carefully, con- uh, a lot of carefully concealed edits, a lot of green screen, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of CG. I mean, I think at this point you don't even need green screen to CG stuff in. The, the, that that clip that's going around of the trench run, there are crowds that don't exist. 
individual soldiers, actors running past him. That happens, but then there is another fifty guys in every shot. Oh, that I see. There. Right, they're not there. You can just pop things in. Huh? Interesting. They've also digitally erased, which no one mentions in <clears> any <throat> of these conversations that I've seen about it. They've digitally erased the camera. The not the camera. They've digitally erased the truck that the camera is on because it's leaving tracks, and they're gone. Oh, it's just so much. Of it is you didn't feel post. sick at the beginning or feel nauseated? No, I don't have that. I, um, don't, I don't have that reaction. I did, a little bit, and mm-hmm. I thought I'm in trouble. How long did it take to uh, About five that? minutes, and then I was into it. And then I thought it was interesting, and then I thought it wasn't interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. But, but people do have problems with that sort of sustained motion shot thing. But yeah, Bird Birdman was kind of like that for me. Yeah, oh, Birdman was... You know, you want to talk about a single take I hate. Why? Because it doesn't matter. In that case, like 1917, at the very least is people have compared it to Call of Duty because it's a front perspective video game but what 1917 does is immerse you in a world that doesn't exist in Birdman I think Inaritu just does it because he can and he's enamored with it but it keeps showing you things that are not only distracting but retroactively pointless I mean whenever anyone told me how Birdman doesn't have a wasted moment in it I would always say okay what about the scene where his wife and his girlfriend almost kiss what is that there for? It, <laughs> they hate each other. The idea that like that Inaritu just thinks that if only two attractive women would sit still for five seconds, they would be attracted my, to each my other. My friend Amy Ryan is in it. I said, yeah. what, what was that like? She goes, oh, man. A lot of, <laughs> lot of pressure. Yeah. A lot of pressure. Because uh, you don't want you, you to fuck it up. Camera's coming toward you. Here's my bit. It's not long. Three lines. We're going to move on. Don't fuck it up. Yeah. I just... I I don't think he'll be happy as a filmmaker until he kills a grip. <laughs> like his pursuit of realism and his his insistence on doing things the only way they can be done, it just doesn't that block you off from other possibilities? Like the whole the thing about the revenant where they ran over time by months and had to move from Alberta to I think Argentina because they lost winter because he would only shoot during magic hour. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Huh? Like, we live in an era, wow. he does it himself, where you can color correct digitally. Sure, you don't have to do this to people. Yeah. You got a fake bear. Why not a yeah. fake climate? And he was lying about the bear. Why? He what was do you mean? It wasn't real. a lie like, bear? He was saying that we had a no. real bear on set. No, and they, they released green screen images of the like the guy in the suit. Oh. And he insists like everything has to be super real and super practical. That was a frightening scene, that bear scene. I Honestly, I could tell he was on a gurney. You were? Yeah. Well, no, oh, I could tell DiCaprio God, was on vicious a... Being, viciously being ripped apart. Yeah. Oh, and he acted it. I mean, yeah. he performed it. But yeah. you could also... There's a... You know, it's the same thing that happens in Forrest Gump when they pick up Gary Sinise and his center of gravity isn't where it should be. Yeah. Don't, 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 mention, don't mention Forrest Gump. I'm not a fan either. No. Um, but there, there are things that people do compensate for in CG, and there are things that people don't know they have to yet. I yeah. mean... This year alone, with Gemini Man and The Irishman and Cats, these are all films that were heavily CG'd. Did, did, the, did the CG stuff in The Irishman bother you? It did. How but so? It's I, th- I think it's because I saw it in a theater, and the larger the scale, the more time you have to look at how it doesn't work. Look, too waxy? To look too what? You're seeing... Sometimes it just the faces weren't on the bodies properly. I mean, uh-huh. there's a moment where Joe Pesci leans in to fix the engine. Yeah, at and the beginning. The, yeah, and the light falls across him in a way that you can tell that his head and his neck aren't together. Oh, interesting. It's just weird. But the right. other thing is that this, the, the algorithm, whatever it is, and this is what I meant about the stuff that they shot on Faith, 
the algorithm doesn't correct for no, uh, cartilage. Like your nose and your ears are bigger when you're 70 than they are when you're 25. Sure, and so what you get is from shot to shot, you get these weird Dumbo versions of people. <laughs> their, their features are too big. Uh-huh. And De Niro, you know, I love him, but he's an old man. And he's when he tries to act like a younger man and do things quickly, the body doesn't make it. I agree with that. When yeah. he's chucking rocks into the water, it's like... Yeah. It's like an 80-year-old dude doing it. But yeah, the curb said stomping, that, which does not work at all because yeah, like, when his it, hips are bothering him. You can tell. Right, yeah, I know. That's the only thing that kind of bothered me. And I, I, apparently he addressed it. You know, he addressed it with Pacino and De Niro. Mm-hmm. He said, you got to move like a... you got to oh, move yeah. younger. Yeah, they had an age guy on set. They yeah, had yeah, someone yeah, there to yeah, tell yeah, them how yeah, old yeah, they had yeah, to yeah. be. When you go up the stairs, you got to move younger. Yeah, fast. Yeah. They get so married to this concept of being able to do something that they convince themselves it'll work. And then in the end, we're stuck with the results. Yeah, but it's a press point. They can sell it. It didn't bother me that much. Yeah. The only thing that bothered me was them, as I say, not being able to physicalize their youth. Mm. But And we also know what they looked like at those ages. That's the other problem, too, with using these actors, right? Yeah. We know what 22-year-old Robert De Niro looked like. Yeah, we all yeah, saw yeah. Mean Streets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that scene yeah. in, at Anzio, which I looked it up, the, the real guy was supposed to be 25 years old, and De Niro looks 40 at the youngest, yeah, because he's it's, a it, it, it was hard guy. Yeah, it was hard to peg their ages throughout. I didn't know what age they were supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, um, when you do the math, it gets weird because yeah. he's supposed to be like in his nineties at the end. But I think his I think his performance is completely underappreciated. I mean, oh yeah, I mean that that scene he has with Hoffa's wife at the end on the phone where he's empathetically apolog not apologizing, but he's. He's trying to explain he's himself, just, right? Just, like, without he's, saying it. Just he's at a loss of words. It's almost poetic the way he's he emotionally runs through that monologue, and he just keeps talking, blathering. Yeah, no, just it's to a, fill in the the silence and the awkwardness. Yeah, it's a stunning performance. I mean, I'm not surprised it isn't getting awards traction just because it's not showy. It's not showy because he's playing a factotum, a common man who happens to be killing people. Yeah, and he you doesn't. Know? He doesn't. But he's not like Pacino. It. He's it's it's not like this. Not blowhardy, but you know this larger-than-life type of Jimmy Hoffa performance. Mm. Or what Pesci's doing, which is Pesci's taking himself amazing. all the way I think Pesci's, like, astonishing in that film. Yeah. And they're all... And Talk about a quiet, evil man. Yeah. And then you have Anna Paquin, who has almost no dialogue, or doesn't have any dialogue, that right? That didn't she's bother me. No, she's incredible. Like, And yeah. there's a moment in that scene with in the bank with him, where with, with De Niro, where you actually get that she learned stuff from... Hoffa. She learned control from him, which is such a great little observation, and it comes through only in her face. Like, it's not in the movie. Um, or not in the script, rather. It's just there in that moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I think the CG de-aging thing just got in the way for me. It and did. Did you see it theatrically or on... I saw it at the Beacon Theater in New York City. So you did? It okay. took my son and my wife. And it wasn't uh, we were sitting in the second row, so it was a little bizarre to get used to the first half hour. Okay. But once we got into it, we were like, ah, it didn't bother me. Yeah. It, it also goes away after the first What's hour. That? It's only there for an hour, right? Then you yeah. sort of sink into yeah. the... Yeah, and then they sink into the old man stuff, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, I don't know. But the, the great, uh, I mean, the great thing about that film, you'll never see those guys again on uh, in the same frame. All of them? Mm. Pesci, De Niro, Pacino, Harvey Keitel. I mean... Yeah, it's a great group of astonishingly iconic actors that changed the face of cinema. Yeah, and it was 
wonderful to see them reunited for a movie that actually says something as opposed to some of the other pictures that have put them together recently, you know, like Righteous yeah. Kill and whatever. Or those Heat are. or whatever. Heat's great, but Heat's a different mode. Right. I it's also argue. 20 years ago, I guess. 25. 25, yeah. Don't think about it. Yeah, it's about regret, death, life. Mm-hmm. Redemption. No, I'm, Redemption. I'm glad, the, I'm glad the Irishman turned out as well as it did. I just kept thinking, you know... Did and, the time bother you? Uh, no, I didn't have a problem with it, huh. even theatrically. I mean, I'm used to, you know... It's incredible that we're having arguments over whether a movie is too long when people are binging for Right, they're binging for 10 hours. Yeah, yeah, they're binging for a weekend. Yeah, yeah. I was comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it in, in the light box in theater. I had to put it in two for us because it had Atmos. But um, it's the only room in the building with the Dolby Atmos Oh, I see. I see. So I would have loved to see it in one, but two was good. And it was comfortable. I mean, you know, I had to go out and pee. Once. Have you interviewed him? Scorsese? Yeah. No, never. I would love to. Yeah. I would love to know what movie he would pick for this, but just to have a conversation about cinema. He's in general, an encyclopedia. I, mean, I know. Like I, I want to bet it would be I mean, like La Notte or something like that. Something he has a personal feel for. Sure, but he might just as easily pick um, I don't know, Public Enemy or something else. Yeah, in shape yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Half the fun of this is fun, is finding out what people choose. Uh, who'd you have to who'd you have to discuss all the president's men with oh uh, Lucas Neff who's an actor he's in uh, Marriage Story this year actually what's he playing that he's the camera operator or the grip that Scarlett Johansson sleeps with in the car oh yeah he's cool he's, he's good great. yeah lovely he's, actor he's a lovely guy yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's Canadian no no he was in town with a movie huh um, he was here for something at Inside Out I think yeah I'm sorry. great 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 movie Pakula is that yeah, yeah, but directed yeah. it. Yeah, right off that incredible run of conspiracy yeah. pictures he was doing. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's of a piece with the parallax view in so many ways. Yeah, I mean that's what I grew up watching those films. That's what I was glued into character driven dramas. Yeah, well they made them then. <laughs> they made them and they were financed, supported. Yeah. Yeah. No, the idea that major studios are putting out stuff like Downhill Racer still kind of amazes <laughs> me. Just because it's even it's, Bobby Deerfield. Yeah. Like weird shit. You yeah. know. Would that have been the thing where Pacino's coming off The Godfather and wants to make this Definitely. little picture and they're okay with it? Definitely. I could see the gleam and the ego and the confidence that, that he had at that point just dripping off him. He was just electrically star-like during that period of time. Yeah. Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day no afternoon. one's picked Dog Day Afternoon yet. What? I know, right? What? It's Yeah, it's weird, actually. Now that you mentioned. Wow. That's weird. Yeah. He's so good in that. Everybody is. I mean, I, I, I think that might be my favorite New York movie. It's either that or Pelham One Two Three, films that use the use New York. They use the city, but they also use the energy. Like sure. everybody's cranky. It's one more goddamn thing in both movies. <laughs> like every those films are about inconvenience uh-huh, more than sure. anything else. Yeah, all my friends who come to New York to live. I'm like, how you doing? And they're like, oh my god, I'm so exhausted. I said, wait. <laughs> The city is is like it's like this visual and auditory assault when you first get there, and you are spent by the end of the day. But a year and a half, two years in, you're as crumbly and as cranky and as uh, as uh, as New York as you'll ever be. Yeah. So um, the 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 closer on the on the podcast is always the same as well, which is: is there anything of 1917 that I guess now we have to use future tense because it's usually that you have borrowed or stolen or absorbed but now it's is there anything that you will use you will use with what uh just incorporate into is there something in it that you would want to steal or or riff on or mm, um, add to a pause a hesitation a technique 
In terms of acting? Just, yeah, you personally. Not Any, really. No? No, I'm not really that fond of the film. Okay. Um, I know that's a horrible thing to say, to no, talk no. about a film. It's fine. Uh, yeah, because I was so emotionally removed from it. So, mm-hmm. um, I, 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 I am compelled by George McKay and what, what he'll do in the future. I think he's, an, I think he's got an interesting, odd face mm-hmm. for a movie star. So, for that reason, I, it's nice to look at somebody not, you know, perfect, with symmetrically perfect features. Yeah. You know, so. It's just that little gaping fish mouth. Just, just gets me. It looks like he's been hit with something. Which works in 1917, like the horror of it. But I guess if you're casting someone, and this is just, again, my, I'm sure my gut reaction to him as a, as a visual presence. If you're casting someone who's seen some shit and doesn't want to talk about it, he should close his mouth more. <laughs> there you go. I'm a monster. <laughs> That's what it is. You're tough. You're a tough monster. <laughs> My thanks to J.C. McKenzie, whose fun new horror series, October Faction, is now streaming globally on Netflix. Thanks also to Jennifer Rushman. She knows what she did. And my apologies to Nicole Dorsey for forgetting her last name when we were talking about Black Conflux back then. I'm a dope. You can find J.C. on Twitter at J.C. McKenzie, all one word, and you can find 1917 in theaters right now pretty much everywhere. It'll also be on 4K, Blu-ray, DVD, and all the streaming platforms sometime in, I'm guessing, April? As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're pretty good. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening. See you next week. 